The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So today we are continuing our series in the core values. This is really what are the marks of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And today we're focused on community. Now I want to get more specific than that because at times we talk about community and it can sound like this high and lofty abstract idea. And I, you know, if I'm doing a sermon on this, I usually share from Acts chapter 2 and make you feel guilty for not being like the early church when everything was perfect. And then uh, we'll talk about the one another's and then call it a day. That's how my sermons on this topic normally go. Uh, but there's a type of relationship that should be happening within our communities, and it's very simple. It's the concept of friendship. Now, I know friendship isn't as appealing as romance. We know that. Romance gets our attention. Uh, in the store, what do you see on the magazine covers? It's look who's sleeping with who. Look who's cheated on who. It's never look who's friends with who. Like friendship doesn't tend to get us uh, moving like that. Now movies usually have at least a thread of romance. Um, if they don't have that natural, they'll, they'll force it in there so that you'll want to pay attention to the movie. Uh, it makes it more interesting. But a friendship theme probably wouldn't sell the tickets in the same way. If you go to a bookstore, you'll see whole sections on marriage and parenting, but not much at all on friendship. We just uh, go through life expecting friendships to happen, and we don't tend to think all that deeply about it. I read recently that uh, about 40% of American adults would say they have zero to one confidant someone they can share things with, zero to one confidant in their lives. There's a book called The Lonely American, Americans. Much of what, uh, they, they talk about how much of what we think of as depression is actually just loneliness that's manifesting itself in that way. And, and people feel that way because they're, actually, they're in, in fact lonely. Now, I don't want to be hypocritical because I did a talk on community in our spiritual discipline series, and I told you that friendship and community are not the same thing. And I said I don't think that you should only be in community with your closest friends. And I still believe that. But I would say that friendship, I think, is a subset of community. Community is more broad, and friendship is more specific. Now, this talk today could be part two of the one I did back a few months ago. But there is a book that I read recently by Drew Hunter. It's made, called Made for Friendship. It's an excellent book. And in this little video clip, he shares the difference and the overlap of community and friendship. We certainly need community. We live in an individualistic age. We have isolationist tendencies that we should flee. God's purpose from beginning to end of history is to create a people for himself. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. But there's a difference between community in general and friendship in particular. And you can be in community with any number of people and have many people in your community, but actually not have any friends. So I think it's important that we talk about community, but as a next step and as a deeper level, also think about friendship in particular. I was talking with someone about his 50th birthday celebration. He had a few dozen people with him in that room, people who knew him that he was in community with. And yet in that moment, he looked around and it was a turning point in his life because he realized that there was only one person in that room who actually knew him and it was his wife. So he had all of these people, a few dozen people in community with him 
and yet he didn't have any friends other than his wife. And so there's a danger in talking a lot about community, but not friendship in particular, because we can begin to think about community and relational life only in terms of groups and acquaintances or groups of acquaintances. Here's one way to think about it. Uh, in order for community to be thick, it has to be consisting of overlapping networks of friendships. So the one another's in the New Testament, that, that Jesus, when he even called us to love one another, he defined it in the Gospel of John in terms of friendship. He said, love one another as I've loved you, and then he defined that in terms of laying his life down for friends. And so to take one example, we're to bear one another's burdens. So when we have great suffering in life, when a family member dies, when we plunge into deep darkness or depression, there is a real sense in which many people can share that burden and carry that burden. But there's another way in which we need a few close friends to suffer with us, to weep with us, to be still with us, to listen to us, to cry with us. And 50 people can't do that. Only a few close friends can do that. So we need to talk a lot about community and also true friendship. I read a recent blog post that talked about the differences between community and friendship. And the person used this analogy as an example of how you might describe it. So let's, let's think about this for a moment. So you're a soldier getting ready to go off to war. People at home are the ones that are writing letters and sending care packages. They love and miss you. These are your friends. But the people that are in the war with you, in the trenches, sharing rations, carrying burdens, dodging bullets with you, this is your community. It's possible for some of your friends to be in your community, but not all of them will be. Uh, so I have close friends. I have some close friends that are in other parts of the world. But I could never say that they're part of my current community. But I need people that are in my community that are also close friends to me. And so we're, we're talking this morning about how uh, this talk is really for those that have stepped into community and they're asking, okay, now what? I did all the things the church asked me to do. I put myself in those environments, but now what? And maybe you've attended a group for a few weeks. Maybe you've been months or years, but you've been in Bible studies. You've been around dinner tables with other people, but you still don't experience connection. We often encourage in the church this big idea of community, but we don't always show people how to cultivate true friendships. So biblical community should, I think, lead to deep friendships. One encouraging thing I heard this past week is that Shannon Sword, our college pastor, is starting a series on this, how to cultivate friendships, with the college students this coming semester. And that's really encouraging for us to hear, considering we know how friendships took a big hit, especially during uh, COVID and all that came with that. Now, why do we tend to neglect this topic of friendship, I think, in the church? Well, I think at times we can discourage, whether it's directly or indirectly, close friendship in the name of not setting up cliques. What do you hear sometimes in, in, in church circles? Well, I went there, but it was just too clicky. And now that might be true. But the other side of that coin is that we might say, at times we might say, well, I should just love everyone. And so therefore, I may not pursue close friendships because I don't want to be exclusive. And I get the pressure for us to think that way. But listen, in the body of Christ, we need to have some close friendships. We need to have some close friendships. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is a great verse for the digital age. 
It's amazing how ancient this is, but it applies today. It's not uncommon for us to have over a thousand friends or followers on social media. On my own accounts, at times I'll, I'll be like, wait, do I know that person? I don't know how I know that person, but we're friends somehow on Facebook or Instagram. And, um, but imagine if, if, you, if you truly tried to manage that many friendships in real life. Over a thousand people, we call them friends. We are a mile wide, but an inch deep. So why does, that, why does having that many friends lead someone to ruin? Well, you, you can't possibly manage that. You're pulled in far too many directions if you try to manage that many relationships. So it's not about how many people we know, but, but about how deep we go with some of the few. And so friendships are this unique relationship. There's no relationship like it, not even family. In ancient times, family was seen as the tightest relational circle that someone could live in. But here in this, in this proverb, we see a friend breaks inside that circle and moves even closer than family. And the Bible says that we need close friends, but we cannot let the fear of cliques keep us from investing deeply in one another. So let's define the kind of friendship that we're talking about today. In his book on friendship, Drew Hunter, he has this really cool analogy. It's a four-lane highway, and these people are traveling along with you. And in the left lane, he describes it as left lane are your close friends. Middle lane would be casual friends, another middle lane, acquaintances, and then far right lane and personal relationships. He uses this analogy because what's supposed to happen on highways is that there's the fewest people in the left lane. Now, if you've driven in Texas, that's not what happens here. Everyone's trying to jam into the left lane and go as fast as the next person, right? But theoretically, it's supposed to be the left lane has the fewest people, and those are really your closest friends. The the right lanes tend to fill up or should fill up and be going slower. But we know on a highway, cars can sometimes change lanes. A longtime acquaintance might later become a close friend or once close friends become just an acquaintance. Somebody might be traveling along with you in the left lane, and for whatever reason, they move to a middle lane, right lane, or maybe even take an exit ramp. And listen, that's okay. We've got to be understanding as we approach friendship, be gracious with one another. We can't force friendship on someone else. But for the message today, we're talking about these left lane, these close friends. And uh, this comes from his book, Made for Friendship. So what are the marks of true friendship? Well, first we have affection. So what does it look like to have these deep friendships in the context of community? So we see affection. So one of the most common Hebrew words for friendship is is this idea of one who loves. That means they like being around each other, to put it simply. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, he wrote of these moments with his friends. He, He called these moments golden sessions where he and his friends were gathered around a fire, eating good food and drink and just laughing and talking, and time just seemed to stand still. Maybe you've experienced moments like that in your life. I can think back on when I was in college. I was in a house with a bunch of guys, some solid Christian uh, guy friends across from the campus that I attended in college, and there'd be nights where we would stay up late, hanging out, just sharing stories, laughing so hard your stomach would hurt. And I would go to bed on those evenings, and for a few moments, I would just stare up at the ceiling and think, you know, that that was a gift from God, just this gift of friendship. 
And we see this kind of affection in the friendship of David and Jonathan in the Bible in 1 Samuel 18. It says, as soon as, sorry, wrong slide here. It says, as soon as he was finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So loving someone as our own soul is to care for someone as much or more than we care for ourselves. In the life of David and Jonathan, Jonathan was, in the ancient times, should have been king. Should have been the next king after, after King Saul passed away. He should have been the next king if you look at how they normally work those things out. But David was appointed by God to be the next king. And instead of being in rivalry with him, he was in this deep friendship with someone that should have been his political rival. He laid aside his own desires and his own agenda for this deep friendship with his friend David. Now, there's a soul connection. It says he loved him as his own soul. There's a soul connection. We have to admit, I think, that I, as, a, as a guy, I would say that women probably are naturally better at this than men. I think we can struggle sometimes. We often think that, that um, it, it can come across as too close to be that close to someone else. So we opt to keep things at a surface level, which uh, just so you know, there's a, we're going to share an article later today or later this week online uh, with the sermon link that we have posted online for this sermon. We're going to post an article uh, for really anyone tree, but it's called 15 Strategies for Men or Anyone to Strengthen Friendships. You can read that later on this week if you get a moment. So first we have affection, and then we have constancy. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This means that they have a commitment to the friendship. Now, you might ask, well, what about the, the traffic lanes analogy where you, know, you can move in and out at will or take an exit ramp even? Well, that was just describing what happens, not what is always supposed to happen. You know, at times we view friendship as just no commitment, just no effort. That's the beauty of it, Right? We approach it like a consumer. If this person continues to do for me, I'll do for them. But there's often no commitment in our friendship. So commitment is in friendship, we believe it's biblical. We see it in the life of David and Jonathan. We see it when Paul is writing letters to churches. We see his commitment he has to the friendship that he shares with them. So how do you know that a friendship is constant? Well, this verse tells us. When it withstands suffering, it says, A brother is born for adversity. What that means, it uses family language. Whenever you go through a trial or an adverse moment, that someone who's a friend, they become a brother. They become a sister. They become like family to you. Because they're walking with you through a very difficult time or circumstance in your life. Whenever you are going through a circumstance like that, we know a friendship is strong when we don't have anything to give that person. Or all we have to give them is a burden, and they stick around. That's constancy. That's being constant as a friend. What about when we're not constant? Well, we've got to be gracious with one another, because sometimes constancy looks like apologizing when we're not constant. So there's really two warnings here. I know when I say constancy and being constant as a friend, that does not mean that you get to be overbearing. That does not mean you get to be constantly at their house at 2 or 3 a.m. all the time and wearing out your welcome. So there's balance here. So we can't be overbearing, but we also cannot make someone feel guilty for not 
being as constant as we might want them to be. Then we have transparency. First John 1 John 1.7, which says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So think of whenever you, when you have a, a, an object that's transparent, you can see through it, and there's a light that's shining through it. You can see into the object. So real friends can see into us. True friends walk in the light together. But that's not about just being perfect. It's about admitting when we're not perfect. As we confess our sins to God, but also to one another, we find forgiveness, we find true fellowship. And if we don't walk in the light with someone else, it will hinder our fellowship with God, but also with one another. So we know there's honesty in friendship, but sometimes we are honest without being open. Everyone has that friend who just spouts off their opinions about everything. They say things like, you know, I'm just honest. It's my personality. I just tell it like it is. Yes, but, but how, are, how are you doing? Are you open? Because sometimes those, those strong words and opinions are, are really a, a facade or a mask for what's really happening inside your soul. And we open ourselves up to trusted friends, and they don't move away from us, but they move towards us. That's when friendship can gain traction. Drew Hunter writes, we crack open the doors of our souls to our friends, and when we don't, our friends gently knock because they care enough to see how we're really doing inside. Every one of us needs at least one person who knows us as well as we know ourselves, perhaps even better than we know ourselves. So I'll talk to the men again. We need transparency, not just about our sin issues, but our emotional struggles as well. There are three emotions that, are, that we think of in our culture, and, and they're sadness, fear, and anger. And from these three, anger is the only emotion that's accepted in our culture for a lot of men. We see it in politics and sports. We see it everywhere. You're allowed to be angry, but not allowed to be sad or fearful because those two connote weakness. So over the years, here's what I've seen, is that many men have these, these deep fears, deep sadness, deep anxiety, and when it's not dealt with, it often comes out as anger. So how do you learn transparency? Well, what fears do you have? What are you sad about? What angers you? Start writing it down. Start talking about it. Start confessing it. When you do this, you're going to see that friendships begin to deepen. Number four, we have honesty. Honesty and transparency are not the same thing. They're different. Because transparency is allowing someone to see into your soul. Honesty is when you need to speak hard truth to someone or receive those truths yourselves. Now, when that happens, it should be done with gentleness. Proverbs 27, 5-6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So look at the contrast in verse 5. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. So what does that mean? Well, if someone that we love is heading into foolishness, and we refuse to tell them or confront them in love, we are hiding love from that person. 
We are holding love back from that person. And we do that because we care more about what our friends think of us than what they need from us. So if we hold back a necessary rebuke, it's like hiding medicine from a sick friend. You know, some people in our lives, all they're going to do for you is they're just going to kiss up to you. And it says here, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. They'll just tell you how great you are. They never rock the boat. They never say any hard things to you. They might seem like the greatest friend, but Proverbs says they are actually an enemy. There's a difference between being nice and being kind. I think in the church culture that we're in, we emphasize at times just just being nice, like just gloss over things. Don't say hard things to people. If someone says hard things to you, you can get mad at them for it because you you didn't deserve that. They should be nice to you. And that's niceness, but, but what about what's kindness? It's possible for us to say hard, something hard to someone and still be kind about it and do it in a kind and loving way. You see, a good friend loves enough to give faithful wounds and also loves enough to do it with kindness and gentleness. Now, rebuking someone can be risky. We know that we're not sure how they're going to respond. If they're a left-lane friend, they might jump across all the lanes of traffic and take an exit ramp, but they also might thank us, and they might even move closer. They might even get in the same car with you. And so we have honesty, and then we have empathy, number five. This is the ability to feel what someone else feels, to see what someone else sees. Some might call this emotional intelligence. This person can detect someone's emotional state, and they know how to adjust to it. Proverbs 25 says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now, when someone has a heavy heart, we shouldn't go to that person and and say things like, you know, hey, cheer up. Like, here's a song. Let me sing you a song. Like, let me get you in a better mood. Like, we shouldn't do that with someone when they're in the depths of despair, like in the valley of death. We shouldn't go to that person and try to just cheer them up with some song. That person that tries those kinds of things, the, the proverb here compares that person to like someone who rips off someone's coat on a cold day. A very fitting analogy for today, I think. Imagine if you, if you park down there at the outback, far away from this building, and we're walking up here in 20-degree weather, and someone just runs over to you and like rips off your coat and just takes off with it. That person would grate on you. That would be the most annoying thing that happened to you today, right? But that's what's being described here. That person just irritates you because they never understand the emotional moment. It also uses the picture here of, of vinegar and soda. We know that vinegar and soda don't mix well. How many of you, when you were a kid, at some point, you made the clay volcano in school as your science experiment? You put the baking soda in there, and you put the vinegar in, and then what happens? There's an explosion because soda and vinegar do not mix well. It's explosive. So that's what happens with this kind of person. This person, their, their words never mix well with the situation. And there can be some explosive responses. 
So emotional intelligence is so important here. Now, Proverbs 26 says this, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Now, this passage, I think, shows the opposite of empathy. Because if our joking causes someone else to get hurt, it's no longer a joke. It's, it's sin. This would be like throwing an arrow into someone's chest, and now they're bleeding out, and then your response is, well, well I was just joking. Well, listen, if someone gets hurt, it's no longer a joke. And so someone who's not empathetic will struggle to have real friends, or at best, they'll be surface, surface level. Drew Hunter writes, Empathy shapes the whole tone of a relationship. Without it, we trade honoring friends for one-upping them. We trade affirmation for sarcasm. We trade talking with for talking at. We trade listening to sorrows for changing the subject. When people come to you and share difficult things, it's very tempting to just, I'm not sure how to respond. How, what do I say in this hard situation? And we just want to talk about the game. Let's just change the subject and move on. And that's difficult because we don't really know what to say sometimes, and we can avoid people that are walking through hard situations because of that. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sometimes all you can do, the absolute best thing you can do, is just sit with someone and weep with them. That is showing empathy, or rejoice with someone. Something good didn't happen to you, that's okay. You're connected in Christ. You're going to celebrate that with them, and so you rejoice with those who rejoice, and you weep with those who weep. And then number six, we have trust, a basis for any kind of friendship. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. One of the characters in Proverbs is this character, the whisperer. This person is, is one who shares information. There might be true information, but that should probably stay hidden. So we know that gossip can erode trust and can destroy friendship. A good rule for gossip that I try to use in my own life is if the person you are speaking to isn't part of the problem or part of the solution, then we probably shouldn't be speaking to them. And so you have these six marks of, of what I think are true friendship from the Scriptures— and as Chase mentioned last week, we're inviting you during this Core Value series on the Monday after we preach these sermons uh, to fast and pray, spend time in God's Word from sunup to sundown about the topic that we're talking about. It might seem strange to ask you to, to invite you to fast after you went to the store and bought all that food yesterday. But we encourage you to do that. We invite you to that. You don't have to. It's, it's an invitation to do something like this as we go through this series together. So how do we cultivate friendship? We might think that friendship is something that really shouldn't require any work. And we know that friendship often begins without effort. I'm sure you can think back on friends you've had throughout your life. It didn't seem to require that much work to start that friendship. But that's not really how friendships endure. Talking face-to-face is one discipline for us as we cultivate friendship. There have been seasons of my own life I can look back on and think that, that friendship seemed much easier when I was in high school 
or college or young adulthood. Like you're just placed in someone's life through work or circumstance or school, and you just kind of naturally work out your friendships. But as you move into like middle age and later adulthood, you understand that it gets more difficult, and you've got to make time for it. And you've got to find ways to cultivate it and be intentional. And I would say a season of my life right now, that's become very difficult as I found myself in, in the middle, age, middle stages of life. So in certain forms of communication, just have a way of moving us closer. The Apostle John wrote to his friends in 2 and 3 John. He said, though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. And said, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And he said that before the digital world. Even John knew that this this form of communication, this ink and paper, is getting in the way of real closeness and intimacy. And I wish I could be there with you. I wish I could be there and just see the look on your face and understand what you're going through. And yet he was He was desiring himself to be with them in the person, face-to-face, so they could talk and share life together. Talking face-to-face is always better than some other substitute. You know, at times, when you're talking with someone, some some people can be too dominant, meaning, you know, always talking but never listening, while others might be just too passive, you know, always listening but never contributing and never sharing and being open. We've got to be willing to share but also be interested and curious about the other person. Kelly Needham, in her book on friendship, writes, because Jesus is our companion, we are free to be the most interested person in the room, not the most interesting. It means choosing to ask about their lives rather than looking for ways to share about ours. A soul that is satisfied in Christ is a soul that can be interested in new people. If you're a Christ follower, our identity is found in Christ. And so we don't have to make every conversation about ourselves. We can show real interest in someone else's life as you meet with them face to face. Next, we have doing things side by side. You know, at times people, there are some people that just want the real intense face-to-face conversation. That's all they ever want to have with you. And listen, you got to let people breathe and, and do some things side by side, like have fun with some people that you're friends with. And instead of making everything just an intense conversation, we've got to be okay with being casual and having small talk while doing something together. You know, some people don't like small talk and, and they see it as a waste of time, but it's, it's usually the entry point for deeper discussions. So what are some things that you can do in the rhythm of your life, and who can you invite along with you as you do those things side by side? Then we have eating around the table. We see food all throughout the Bible, and it's because food changes everything. This is why many of our home groups will share meals together. It's why we have a meal every Wednesday night at the Outback for our junior high and high school kids. It's not just to meet a pragmatic need of trying to come from a practice or school to a church event and trying to meet the need of food. We do it because we think it's spiritual. It changes the dynamic completely, and it's like oil to an engine. Everything just works better when you're eating around the table, sharing a meal together. It just does. 
And then we have encouraging from the heart. Encouragement is like relational oxygen. I, I know for me personally, I struggle to encourage people. I really do. Maybe if you have that gift, you can encourage me to be a better encourager. But I can struggle with that. But, but encouragement is like relational oxygen. If you've hiked up in high altitudes, it's hard to breathe when the air is thin. You feel sluggish when you're up there. And that's what relationships are like when there's no encouragement. There's, encouragement is like oxygen for our souls. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So our words, my words of encouragement, have the power to bring life to someone or to a friendship. I know this can feel out of place in a culture where you know, sarcasm or competition or comparison are normal in our world today. But when the thought crosses our mind to affirm something about someone else, we can do it without hesitation. So where do we find the resources for this kind of friendship? Well, on the eve of his crucifixion, in John 15, Jesus says these words to his disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus, the eternal, all-powerful creator, is sitting there at this last supper with his disciples, and he's calling them friends. He has spent three years with them in discipleship, but also in friendship. And he's going to go to the cross and sacrifice his own body for them. And then resurrect from the grave on our behalf. And when he goes to the cross, the cross is a cosmic act of friendship. The greatest source, resource for friendship is the gospel itself. Because true friendship is about recognizing the friendship offered us in Christ, receiving it, and then extending that, friend, that, that fellowship to other people. And this mission is what should be at the center of friendship. We pursue Christ. We pursue his kingdom. We live on mission. And we find people running next to us. And now we run together. Drew Hunter writes, as we do all this, we give our friends grace. If we need our friends to be perfect friends, we'll become terrible friends. The best advice for cultivating friendship is not to find a better friend, but to become one. God, we thank you for how you sent us Jesus and that he calls his disciples friends and that that friendship that we have with you through Jesus Christ is what should be fueling all of our friendships and relationships. God, we pray that we be a community of people who recognize that we are made in your image first and foremost, that we are relational beings because you're a relational God, that you made us in your image so we could have a relationship with you. God, help us to see that truth, but also to see how that translates into our relationship and friendship with people in the body of Christ in community. We pray this in your name. Amen.